From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. I'm a big advocate for second chances because I got a second chance. Most of the people that I advocate for, I believe defies their first legitimate chance. But because I was a beneficiary of people who believed in me after I screwed up very publicly, I have devoted my life to this work. That's my guest on the show today, Catherine Hoke. Catherine is the CEO of Defy Ventures. Defy Ventures is sort of an unusual nonprofit that tries to help people who have been sentenced to prison in America transition to life outside of prison by helping them become entrepreneurs. Before we get to my conversation with Catherine, let me answer your questions. Hey, Pri, it's Eric calling from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My question is more political than legal, but do you believe Senator Bob Corker's recent comments about Trump being unfit to serve and a potential danger to the country could open the floodgates for more Republicans to criticize or completely break away from the president? What political incentives would need to exist for the GOP to completely divorce Trump? (laughs) Um, uh, Well, look, Eric, uh, I'm not a politician. I don't aspire to be one. And I'm not a political consultant, but I am a citizen of the country, and I did make some comments on Twitter about, you know, something you've never seen before, which is a sitting member of the Senate, and not only any sitting member, but the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee of the same party as the President of the United States, saying in an interview that both the New York Times taped and that he taped, notwithstanding what Donald Trump has tweeted about that later, the President of the United States is leading us on a path potentially to World War III, just so we're clear. This is the the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee of the same party as the president of the United States invoking the prospect of World War III that could be caused by the president of the United States himself. We've never seen anything like that. Somebody from the New York Times tweeted about that interview. This was perhaps, you know, the most strong criticism of a president by a Republican. I said, we don't, perhaps, he literally said World War III. You know, we don't always have to hedge. People should be worried. People should be very worried. And usually I keep my voice low, but sometimes your voice needs to go up a notch. Now, again, as a layperson and private citizen, the question about whether or not other Republicans will come forward is an interesting one. One of the reasons people don't like politicians very much is that they're very cautious and they don't speak their mind because they're concerned about getting reelected. And the most candor you ever hear from a politician is when they're not running for re-election. And so that's why you have more candor from John McCain. You're seeing less candor from someone who's known to be a candid guy from Lindsey Graham, who played golf with the president this week and commended the president on his golf playing skills, which I found interesting. So I don't hold out a lot of hope that people will be more open, forthcoming, break with the president, even if they think it's in the best interests of the country, because they're wrapped around this idea of not wanting to alienate certain people because they're looking for their vote. And I get that. That's how democracy works. But I think it's unfortunate. Here's a question from Ruth. Hi. Um, My question is that now that we have further information on the Russian involvement with the 2016 election, with the involvement on Facebook and Twitter ads, could it be conceivable that a new election would be called similar to like was recently held in Kenya? Uh, Okay, Ruth, thank you for your question. I think the odds of a new election of the sort that happened in Kenya is very low. (laughs) I would put the odds maybe at zero. Sorry to disappoint you. I will say, however, this issue of whether or not these, uh, you know, uh, social media giants like Facebook, Twitter, Google need to do more is clear. I think that they, I think that they do. You know, we, we talk about them as being social media enterprises, but they're really mammoth, massive 
tech companies that, among other things, have huge amounts of personal information about most of the people who live on the planet at the moment. That's not a small thing. With respect to Facebook alone, I think we saw Mark Zuckerberg come out recently and say they've got to do a better job of having transparency with respect to which people are buying political ads. Now, the one thing I will say about this is I think it was as far back as 2011 that Zuckerberg and others at Facebook said that it was impracticable, yeah, that's that's really a word, to reveal to the public who was buying which political ads. But then fast forward a few years and the stuff hits the fan like it has over the past few weeks and we find out that Russians were apparently paying for political ads in rubles. And now, uh, because of pressure, Mark Zuckerberg announces they're going to do exactly what he said was not possible to do back in 2011. So I think, I think politicians, the public, legislators have to be tough on social media companies so that we make sure that we have democracy in the way we want it in future elections. This next question comes from Twitter, from Deaf Not Dumb at Aldwag75. And the question is, Mr. Barrara, with all due respect, will these podcasts be transcribed? So for people who would rather read the interview or can't listen to them on the air, go to cafe.com. You'll find transcripts of all the interviews we've done. But not only that, you'll also find other extras, including articles written by me relating to some of the things we talk about on the podcast every week. So that's cafe.com, and you can check it every Thursday when the show comes out. So now it's time for my conversation with Catherine Hoke. The reason I wanted to talk to Catherine is I got to know her when I was a U.S. attorney, and I think she's doing some of the most innovative, nonpartisan work relating to criminal justice in the country. And I find not only her work, but also her own story to be inspiring. Welcome to the show, Catherine Hoke, also known as Cat to your friends, yes? Yes. So Thank you, sir. Good to it's good to, good to have you. I can never figure out if it's Catherine or Cat. Both work. So you had a birthday recently. Yes. Where'd you spend your birthday? I spent my fortieth birthday at Pelican Bay State Prison. It's my favorite place in the world. So, you know, I prosecuted people for much of my most of my adult professional life. It is very rare that I hear someone say that. So could you explain what on earth you're talking about? Sure. I'm the founder and CEO of Defy Ventures, D-E-F-Y, like defying the odds. We work with men, women, and youth who have criminal histories. They're serving their time. We run a rehabilitation program that transforms their hustle and prepares them for a successful release after they get out. When they get out of prison, we help place them in jobs. We have a mentoring program, and we incubate and finance successful businesses started by people who have criminal histories. Well, I'm going to get, I want to get, right. we have a lot to talk about okay. with respect to your work, which people might be surprised to learn that I'm, I'm not only a fan of and an admirer of, but also a participant in, in my new life. Uh, but first I want to get back to your birthday. So you go to prison yeah. for, the, for the whole day? Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was a two-day event. We had almost 100 CEOs and venture capitalists who flew out for the two-day event. That was For your birthday? For my birthday. I mean, cake? my birthday was one day. Did you have cake? <laughs> We had cake. We even had a band. What kind of band did you have? It was like a 80s cover band. So, it was the first band concert they'd ever had at Pelican Bay. Where's Pelican Bay? It's at the Oregon border of California. So let's take a step back. You did not begin your professional life and career caring about people in prison. You began your professional life and career as a Wall Street person, right? Right. What were you doing? 
I used to work in venture capital, and then I worked in New York City for a private equity firm. And I used to think that anyone who was incarcerated was the scum of the earth, as far as I was concerned. When I was 12, a good friend of mine was brutally murdered by two 16-year-old boys, and I just assumed that everybody in prison could rot and die in that place. When I was 26, so 14 years ago, I was invited by a J.P. Morgan executive on a trip to a Texas prison. And when she invited me, my first reaction was, um, no thanks. I have better things to do with my time. I've never been to Texas, where the prison visit was that she was going on. And I had no interest in, I mean, going to prison, So why'd you go? When she started speaking with me about the people that she has met in prison, she talked about how not everyone in prison wants a second chance, but so many of them do. and They don't even know what it looks like. And as she spoke about the people that she has met in prison, I could start to feel my heart buzzing. I was looking for my calling and purpose in life. I was very good at doing deals. I'm a salesperson. I used to sell Cutco knives back in the day. I was able to rope in deal flow very effectively for my firms. But I could see that so many of the successful partners that I worked with were still not that fulfilled in their lives. And so I was like, what's the end game? I'm a big picture person. I like to know what the goal is. Is dying with the biggest pile of money? Is that it? I've talked to as you might imagine, a lot of people who are in the business of rehabilitation and you know moving people who are incarcerated into society, and I don't hear many of them speak in terms like I could rope in a lot of deal flow. <laughs> so you have an you have an unusual background to have done this. Uh, so you go to the prison, mm-hmm. and what happens to you? It, it changed everything for me. So when I went there, I showed up with very strong judgments um, and a lot of fear. Frankly, you were skeptical. Yeah, super skeptical and everything. But as I started to speak with the men and women that I met, I was even, I went to death row to visit with people. I realized two things. One is, as I started to realize how they were raised, had I been raised in many of those circumstances, I'm not so sure that I would have had a different outcome either. I'm not making excuses. I never make excuses for the bad choices that they made. But I understood how they could have landed there. The first person that I met on my first prison visit, his name was Johnny Taylor. When Johnny was eight, he watched as his grandfather murdered his father right in front of him. And by the age of 11, he was jumped into a gang. And by the age of 18, he was incarcerated. And unfortunately, these trends, these stories are all too common. So Johnny could have made other decisions. But at the same time, I understand the choices that he made. And now what? You know, we we uh, Americans, we like to say that America is the land of second chances. We don't act that way often enough. The other thing that I realized on that very first prison visit, having been raised as a white girl in a middle class family, uh, I knew nothing about drug rings or gangs. And when I spoke with the people that I met on that first visit, I realized that so many former drug dealers and gang leaders share a lot in common with successful CEOs. Do you do you, do you mean that as a compliment? Uh, or do you mean that as something different? Cause, just uh, observing a fact that many of them are hustlers. They know how to manage a team. Many of our people in prison understand a proprietary sales strategy. They Some of them had way better profit margins than the CEOs that I was trying to work with in venture capital. 
And you also paid fewer taxes. They they pay fewer, a lot fewer taxes. A lot less, in my experience, a lot less reported income. The the one thing that they were not so good at, the people I serve, was their risk management strategies because they all got busted (laughs) and and ended up behind bars. A compliance program, probably (laughs) lacking. Money laundering, compliance, not so good. In my experience also as a prosecutor, there are some incredibly sophisticated criminal organizations that understand... Uh, leadership, you know, for mm-hmm. a bad purpose and a bad cause. So I, I hear what you're saying, yeah. but not not many people then think about uh, figuring out ways to capitalize on that to help them. Right. What made you think of that? Well, when I realized that many of these sophisticated organizations are run by boards of directors and they have accountants and bookkeepers, I I just said, what are you doing with all this potential? I realized that you grew up in these circumstances where you weren't around doctors, lawyers, investment bankers, and legal entrepreneurs. But what would happen if you were equipped to go legit with your skill set? And I said, I get it that you have been selling drugs for most of your life, but what would it be like if you built something as simple as a landscaping company and and built up a landscaping empire. And you don't have to push a lawnmower around yourself. You can hire a, everyone that you know to go pass them out. But then for the first time, you wouldn't have your life on the line anymore and you wouldn't have another prison term hanging over your head. How does that sound? But so, but you're saying this in your uh, a white Canadian woman who's a venture capitalist. Are they saying, who who is this crazy lady who yes. thinks she has something to teach us? Or are they intrigued by it? Now, how, do you, how did you bridge what I'm sure was some gap yeah. between your experience? So first, I don't think they're that different from me. But it took me a while to learn that as well. So when I started, I, didn't, I had no idea what I was doing, but I they were so eager. I mean, these guys have been locked up for 10 or 20 years. No one comes in there to tell them that they believe in them. And I here I am at 26 saying, I believe in you. You can do it. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up with a Hungarian Yugoslav immigrant father who believed in the American dream that anyone can make it. So I said, yeah, when you commit a crime, they can take away a lot of your rights, but no one can take away the right for you to start a business. And maybe people won't want to hire you when you get out of here, but you can still make it. And so transform that hustle. And today, now that I'm a lot less naive and know that many of them are not angels and that they don't necessarily show up with the purest of motivations at that first kickoff, I tell them, look, if you if you like serving time, if, if, if you're not sick and tired, get out because we're about to get weird. You're about to do things that you haven't done before, not because I can make you do things because you're incarcerated, but because I've seen this work over and over and over again, but you have to be up for some change. And if you're not, get out, because this is not the make a million dollars in your first year out of prison program. So just some backstory mm-hmm. for the listeners between uh, you and me. You tried to get a meeting with me when I was a United States attorney, I think for a long time, for months. Yeah, I tried pretty hard. And, I, and I, you know, we were busy in the office, and the principal bread and butter work of a prosecutor's office is to hold people accountable. But there are a lot of things that I had going on all the time, and I, I think I blew off your entreaties for a meeting time and time and time again. I think ultimately, uh, we said a meeting, I think I said, I said 15 minutes max. I think I got 10. And we went an hour and a half yeah. unexpectedly. And I think other things got delayed was because I was so taken by the approach that you had, which was different from what I'd heard other people talking about. You were talking about using tools of entrepreneurship and, you know, to, to be blunt about capitalism and business skills to help improve people's lives who have been incarcerated for a long period of time. I'd never heard that before. And when I stopped being the U.S. attorney because of this this firing thing that happened, 
Uh, I agreed <laughs> to join the executive council of Defy Ventures. Uh, I want people to know that, along with, among other people, Sheryl Sandberg, mm-hmm. who also believe in this work. And, you know, I just want to say that I think it's important in America that prosecutors do care about prisoners, uh, that even though the job of the prosecutor is mostly to do these other things, we can't forget about what happens once people go to prison. And if we want recidivism to go down, and if we want public safety to go up, we can't just forget about people once the guilty verdict is in and the sentencing is imposed by the judge. So, you know, I endorse the work for for that reason. Thank you. And I'm really grateful to have you involved. And some people ask me why I pursued the other side. <laughs> a lot of people see this world as us against them. And Whoever them, us them and them are. Well, yeah. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm for people who are incarcerated, they would think that maybe I would not be also for people who are in law enforcement or people who bring justice. But I'm for justice. That's why we're here right now. That's why we're both here, because we both know that it's not just about punishment, not just about lock them up and throw away the key. Ninety five percent of people who are incarcerated come home to society. And so it, who do we want coming back? So, so, the short, the, so I went with you yeah. along with my brother and along with the deputy United States attorney. And along with like a hundred cops who were swarming Rikers. Well, yeah, I've I never to, seen a scene like that before. <laughs> I tried to come to Rikers Island. This is on, I think, December 8th of last year. It actually also happens to be the day, if you've been following the podcast, that the president-elect called me and left a message at my office, which was another weird thing, I had, which was more weird, by the way, than dealing with, with prisoners and giving them hugs at Rikers Island while I was the sitting United States attorney, which was not to be for that long. Uh, and I brought a bunch of folks, and I thought it would be a low-key thing, but obviously there, were, there, was, con- there was concern for, I suppose, my safety, which they didn't have to be concerned about. And my brother and I and others uh, literally sat there at a table, and you called up person after person who was incarcerated there to pitch us on their business ideas. Yeah, so we have pitch competitions. We've rolled out to find nearly 30 facilities across the country, and we bring in extremely successful CEOs and VCs who hear their pitches and give them feedback. By VCs, you mean venture capitalists? Yes, sorry. If they win, they get an IOU so that after they get out of prison and are admitted into our entrepreneurship incubator, then they can cash out the check and we provide them with startup funding to, to start legal businesses. And we are very competitive at Defy. They start with the quarterfinals, the semifinals, and then the finals. This is not a game, right? These people it's are actually not a game. They really they're pitching for win. real money. Yeah, in real in the real world yeah. after they get out. Yeah. So in New York City, a couple times a year, we have an actual Shark Tank style pitch competition of our own. The first place prize is fifteen thousand dollars. We have graduates who proceed through the competition, and then if they do well, we can also introduce them to angel investors who can provide further equity investments in their businesses. Our most successful graduate. His name is Kos Marte, and he was the founder of Conbody that is here in New York City. Conbody, C-O-N? C-O-N body. It's as a prison-style fitness boot camp. Con is in convict. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes. I don't like that word myself. I say we are all ex-something, so I don't call anyone cons right. myself. But he, but he, but he put that on his gym. So he has a Conbody inside Saks Fifth Avenue. Really? Yes. He has served 14,000 customers. He has like an 80% retention rate for his customers. We've helped him raise $250,000. He has hired 15 people with criminal histories, and he now has an online platform for Conbody Live that has served people in 22 countries. He has customers in all those countries. But what I love most about Koss, he did five years in prison in New York State, 
and uh, he started to change his life when he was in the shoe in the so- in solitary confinement. He was the really shoe was a special housing unit. Special, he's, it goes by security housing unit. It has different names all over mm-hmm. the place, but it's where you go when you get in trouble when you're already locked up. What caused you to think that you should believe in him and that he might be able to launch a successful business? When he showed up to the classes, he sat in the front row. He was on time. He was dressed in a suit and tie. He is the hustler of hustlers. Cause he used to run a... But now in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, transform that hustle. But you can't take the hustle out of the hustler. You can't. And almost any warden will tell you that their prison cells are filled with hustlers who are always selling something. You can get pretty much anything you want in prison. Koss used to be that guy. He ran a $2 million a year drug ring in New York City before going to prison. He went to prison at 19. And then he realized that through his drug empire, he was destroying lives. And he decided that he wanted to go legit. And he had this idea, but ideas are a dime a dozen. They don't go anywhere unless you can get financing, unless you can get access. And that's what Defy provides to people. We give people who don't normally have access, we provide them with access, we vet them. So I believe in the power of redemption. I believe in the power of rehabilitation. But I also believe there are some people who are not redeemable. And I also believe there are some people who say they're on the road to mending but they're still going to victimize people, and there's a concern about that. Do you have to convince yourself that something had changed with respect to uh, not the not the hustle, because everyone hustles in the world, um, mm-hmm. business people and otherwise, but that he had made a change in his life that he wasn't going to harm people or or engage in activity that was destructive? We the people that we serve a, a requirement is that they take ownership of their past, and if they don't take ownership, then we're not interested. I believe that all things can be redeemed. And I have worked with people who have committed very heinous crimes. All I can say is that every time that we gave Koss any opportunity or any assignment or responsibility, he took full responsibility and he turned everything that he was provided with into gold. So they don't get $15,000 in their first Shark Tank competition. If they win the first one, they get $500. And then we see what they do with the $500. That's for the first place. We look for receipts. We look for bank statements. We look for all their activity. Defy is a really tough program. It's 200 courses. Some of them are taught by Harvard and Stanford MBA professors. Do they get their assignments in on time? Are they meeting with their executive mentors? So we're so high on accountability. And a guy who's a fraud is probably not going to follow through and be accountable, or he's going to fail a drug test, or he's... Right. So there are a lot of measurements along the way. Yeah. Is it hard for some of these guys who have criminal records to get people to take advantage of their services. So part of the beauty of entrepreneurship is that usually your customers don't say, do you have a criminal history? By contrast, many employers will ask if you have a criminal history, or maybe they don't ask, they just run a background check and then they throw your resume out. In New York, with ban the box, an employer is not legally allowed to ask about a criminal history up front, but they can run the background check, right. and people discriminate all the time. We have a woman that we serve named Shelly Winner. She came out of a federal prison. She, had t- she did two years on a drug dealing charge. And when she got out, she didn't have any type of technology background, but she really wanted to get into tech. We got her an executive mentor who helped her. And uh, Shelly landed an interview at Microsoft. She's very charismatic. And um, she ended up getting a job offer after they ran her background check. They attempted to rescind the offer, and we let our EITs, that stands for Entrepreneurs in Training, that's what we call our people, we we inform our EITs of their rights, and she let them know that 
discriminating against her because she has a criminal history that is unrelated to the sales work that she would be doing at Microsoft is not legal. I'm proud to say that Shelly has now been recognized twice as an MVP on her sales team at Microsoft. She has been commended and promoted because she's adding so much value. I think people discriminate out of fear. In your experience, who are the kinds of criminals who you think are the easiest to work with versus the hardest to work with? I don't, I don't love stereotypes, but in general, I defy the people that we serve now average nearly 20 years in prison. You usually don't get 20 years in prison unless you have uh, committed a violent crime. I have never had anyone who committed the crime of murder ever go back to jail or prison ever again. They are our mo- most successful category. And sometimes people are like, wow, but not to take too much credit away from Defy Ventures, but um, murders actually have one of the lowest recidivism rates of all crimes in the country, period. People are terrified of people who commit murder because you're thinking about like the psychopath who's creeping on the white woman's porch and then kills her in the shower. I've never met one of those. The people that I work with were 15 years old when they exchanged gunfire with a rival gang member. They grew up with a gang turf. Again, I don't make excuses for what they do, but they weren't killing random victims. They were engaged in a war. And and who are the kinds of folks that you find it most frustrating to deal with and who don't rehabilitate as well? Overall, I would say we've had the hardest time with people who have committed white-collar crime, crimes especially that involve deception with money. And I believe the, the reason for that is that um, when you are deceiving people and you have a lifetime pattern of lying to make yourself look good, sometimes it's harder to take ownership of your past. So I hear a lot of times... I was framed. I didn't do it. And there's there can be, especially when people have achieved a lot of success. By the way, this is like 1% of the people that we serve at Defy that I'm describing right now. But if you've had a lot of financial success in, um, like, uh, if you're a Wall Street guy, if you were one of your guys, Preet, <laughs> um, when you've had a lot of success and that greed and that pride of always looking awesome, it can be harder to take ownership of your past versus my people who know that they have made a grave mistake. If you've always been an angel and have never done anything wrong in your life, then I don't, we don't have anything to talk about. But there's another problem, pride. Yeah. So some of these folks who have been incarcerated, many of them, most of them are men, mm-hmm. committed violent crimes. And part of their ability to transform themselves and come back into society is limited by pride about things that they don't know. And you don't want to be made fun of. You, you, I've heard you yeah. describe the example of somebody who may have been the head of a gang, but now they're out and they want to be legitimate. And they literally don't want to be humiliated by walking into a bank and not because they've never written an actual check. On the day that someone gets out of prison, what's a simple impediment to making a decent living after that? You can't even get a state ID. Um, I don't know why prison systems don't let you exit with a state ID. You walk out with your offender ID. And if you try to cash your $200 check at a bank, I've seen cases where bank tellers get nervous and have had a few of our guys get arrested for showing their offender ID to cash their prison check. People automatically assume this as when it says offender at the top of it, they think it means sex offender. People are freaked out. 
If you have been locked up for 20 years, you might not know how to get your ID. You, not, you might not be able to find your social security card, your birth certificate, all the documents that you need to get a regular government ID that will help you to get employed. Right. I mean, it's, that process it's can take eight weeks. You can't get a job without a state ID. I'm not even talking a, a driver's license. Why don't we release people? I think it would cost states $12 to give them a state government ID. I mean, we know their identity when they're locked up. Yeah, we hope so. And if they were able to come out with a state ID, that would actually allow them to get into a job instead of waiting for eight weeks. What are they supposed to do and how are they supposed to survive? So you get out of prison. A lot of them don't have family members that can take them back into their communities. Or you're told you can't go live in the community that you came from because of your crime. And so you don't have anywhere to live. You have you have maybe 200 bucks, but then you have to spend like sometimes $100 of it on your bus ticket back home. There is no home. Um, and then you can't get a job. So, so we're so, setting people up for failure. So states have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to incarcerate a lot of people. Yeah, in California, we spend $75,000 to lock up one person for one year. And then not giving them one of the most simple and important tools that cost 12 bucks, which is an ID on the day they get let back into society. Yeah. And that's true in most states. There are so many very simple things that we could do to equip people when they're getting out of prison. But you know what? It's not very popular for a politician to say, I want to earmark some funds for rehabilitation or $12 for an ID. If we don't equip our returning citizens to be successful, we're just going to continue the mass incarceration crisis that is plagues plaguing our country. 76.6% of people are rearrested within five years. If you want people to come home and actually stay out of prison and stop committing crimes, we have to give them a viable alternative. And I get excited whenever I see a politician, a prosecutor, anybody else who understands that this is not about tough on crime or, or being too easy on crime. This is about being smart on crime. You spend a lot of time talking about how people on the outside are not all that different from people on the inside. And that comes as a surprise to some folks, came as a surprise to me when you started to talk about it. And you do this exercise in the prisons, and I experienced it at Rikers Island, called Step to the Line. Why don't you describe what Step to the Line is? So it's very easy for those of us who don't have a criminal history to think that we are so different than them, people who are behind bars. And, of course, there's fear about it, but there's a lot of judgment, too. By the age of 23, 30% of people in our country already have a criminal history. So I like to ask our volunteers, how many of you have done something really, really stupid by the age of 23? How many of you maybe did something illegal by the age of 23? So, Preet, I'm asking you right now. Have you ever... I've never done anything stupid in my life. I, that's what I thought. Other than... Other than uh, <laughs> uh, no, look, I, obviously. obviously I, I mean, I, of who, course, of course, who hasn't of course. gotten in a car after drinking one too many? At some point in their college, you know, we're on the air, so I'm, I'm, I'm admitting nothing. But yeah, <laughs> everyone has, and and this this exercise you have is stepping to the line where yeah. you have the sort of you know the, the free folks on the one side and the incarcerated folks on the other side, and you ask questions like, if if you have had someone in your family murdered, step to the line. Yeah. And when you do that, half of what our happens? guys are at the line, and none of our volunteers are at the line. Step you to the line the if you heard gunshots in your neighborhood growing up. All of our entrepreneurs and training EITs, the incarcerated people, eighty percent of them are at the line. What we're doing is we're we're creating empathy amongst people. But when we ask, step to the line if you've done something that you could have been arrested for but did not get arrested, 
all of our volunteers are at the line. And just to put you out there, I think that you are at the line as well. We're going to be editing that out. <laughs> That's going to be edited, Henry. Take that, take that out of the final. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I want to ask you about second chances. You talk about second chances all the time. That's the motivating philosophy of all this great work that you do. And, and this may be difficult to talk about, but you yourself have redeemed yourself mm-hmm. in connection with this work. Want to tell us what that's about? Sure. So I'm a big advocate for second chances because I got a second chance. Most of the people that I advocate for, I believe, defies their first legitimate chance. But because I was a beneficiary of people who believed in me after I screwed up very publicly, I have devoted my life to this work. So I used to work in venture capital and private equity. At 26, was invited on the prison visit. I started my first program in Texas called Prison Entrepreneurship Program that is still running in Texas today with extreme success rates, 7%, uh, less than 7% recidivism, 14 years later, 98% employment rate. And then after five years of building up this organization, that's when I screwed up. I had been married for nine years. I never thought I would be a divorced woman. I was handed divorce papers. My divorce came to me unexpectedly, and I handled myself very poorly in the wake of my divorce. I ended up having some relationships with people I had gotten out of prison. After my divorce, I didn't exactly want to send a press release to people. I was, I was drowning in my own shame. The people who moved me out of my house picked me up from... I, was, I got sick. I, got, I had to be in the hospital. I didn't know who to confide in. The people that I confided in had been graduates of my program. People who had been in prison. Yeah. So they were out of prison. What I did was not illegal, but it was a really bad decision, and I knew that, and I take full ownership of it, and I was honest about my mistakes. I knew the Texas prison system would not appreciate it if they heard about it. And when I was asked, did you do that? I said yes, and they forced my resignation very publicly in the media. Um, it went out across national news. When I saw what people were writing about me, they were making up more juicy details that were not even true. I was not allowed to return to the Texas prison system, and I was forced to resign from my own organization. Is that, does that I remain had, true today? Yeah, well, I'm still not allowed. But I, I'd, I, don't know, I don't know if they'd ever allow me back in the Texas prison system. I actually would be honored to have the opportunity for Defy to serve in the Texas prison system, even if I can't personally step foot in there again. I thought no warden would ever let me back in again, and I sure am glad that I was wrong because we have a nice long wait list now of prison systems that want us back. But at the time, this was eight years ago, I thought I was so disgusting. I hated my guts. I couldn't believe the short-sighted, stupid decisions that I had made because I knew that my decisions could end up costing me everything, but I was so down on myself that I just did things I knew I shouldn't have done. How'd you get over that? I went through a year of very intensive therapy. I've been through more than one year of therapy, though, in my life. And um, I sent a full disclosure letter to—we had 7,500 supporters with the Texas program, and I I told them what I did, the mistakes that I made, and I got 1,000 emails of love and support and what are you doing next— like within a day. I couldn't believe it. But people said, you've always preached grace and second chances. What are you doing next? And I didn't have a plan B. I didn't know what was next. Um, After taking a year to look inside and get my life together and get to the other side of my own shame that I felt about myself, I moved back to New York. 
I got an offer to go back into venture capital. But the minute that I got that offer in hand, I felt like a sellout. I know why God has put me on earth. I know what my purpose and calling is. And although I made some really bad decisions, I also know what makes me feel most alive. I didn't want to be alive anymore eight years ago after what I did. And today I'm very proud of what our staff has built. Today we have 56 staff members. We have these 4,400 executives who have had our back. When you, Preet, said yes to believe in me, it means a lot. It means a lot not just to have you believe in me, but when you have met the people that we serve and you also stand for justice, it means so much. I wish a lot more prosecutors out there were like you. Look, I found I think the work that you do is incredibly inspiring, and we were going to do more work together in that other official capacity if I had remained as a United States attorney. And the first talk I gave as a distinguished scholar in residence at NYU was on this issue of how we get people from prison back into society, and it's something that I think prosecutors, I didn't care about enough the first few years I was in office. I think I began to think about it a lot more and became more real to me when we started investigating the disaster and the tragic circumstances that the people at Rikers live under. And then meeting you and understanding the work that you do and the hope that you provide to so many people is one of the most inspiring things that I've found. So continue to do it, and other people who want to help should seek you out, uh, like so many people have. Thanks for the work you do. Thank you for having me. So now it's time to end the show. As we always do, talking about something that's been in the news that struck me. So obviously a lot of people have been talking about the controversy in the NFL and whether or not it's okay, legitimate, appropriate, patriotic for NFL players to take a knee during the national anthem. And we had this you know, whole, what I think is in fact a political stunt with Mike Pence flying out to a Colts game, knowing that people are going to take a knee and then dramatically leaving, uh, which seems to be a protest of its own, which I think is all fine, except for perhaps the waste of taxpayer dollars. So this whole issue of whether or not it's appropriate to protest in a particular way by taking a knee during the national anthem, I get why it hits people hard. And I think there's some people of good faith who believe in protest and believe in the First Amendment who think, you know, this is just too much for them. I disagree with those people, but I think we should understand where some people of good faith are coming from. And I'll just relate a story of my own. As I think people know, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I was born in India, and my parents came here for a better life in this country. And when I was five years old, in kindergarten. I went to a small public school in Eatontown, New Jersey. And I remember that one of the things the teacher allowed the students to do was every day, a different student got to lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, I, of course, you know, immigrant to the country. First language was not English. I came to the country when I was a year and a half old. And to me, it was a big deal to lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance. And, you know, one day it was one boy, and the next day it was a little girl, and the next day it was someone else. And I'm five years old, and the only thing I remember from that time in kindergarten is that my turn never came. And I went home one day, and I told my mom and dad that I hadn't been given the chance to lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance. And I was upset by that because I wanted to do it, and I felt strongly about it. And my my dad, also immigrant, obviously from India, asked for a meeting with the teacher. And by the way, around the same time, I got a report card, such as it is from kindergarten, and on the report card, I had two unsatisfactories. Now, I'm like, you know... I've never gotten an unsatisfactory in a report card ever in my life. I don't think I would have made it this far. And I got an unsatisfactory on whether or not I knew my home address and my home phone number, which obviously was ludicrous because I knew both of those things. So the combination of my not being allowed 
to lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance combined with this bizarre, unsatisfactory on two things that obviously I knew caused my father to become very upset. And he went to the school. I think he berated the teacher who denied that she'd ever skipped me, denied that there was any issue. And again, there's no, I have no proof. My father's distinct impression to this day, because I called him about it last night, to this day is that this teacher didn't think someone like me, who was an immigrant, who had a funny name from India, had any business leading this class of white children in the Pledge of Allegiance. And that stuck with him then, and it sticks with me now, many, many years later. So I believe that America is the greatest country on earth. I believe that America has a lot of problems. I believe that part of those problems is how we treat minorities in the country, in particular African Americans. I believe that it is important and right and just for people to protest that in any way they can. And one of those ways is to take a knee during the national anthem. Now, if I was going to protest something, I probably wouldn't do it that way because of my experience as an immigrant. But like many other people, given what I know about this country and how much I love this country and what this country has done for my family, who wasn't born here, I would fight to the death for their right to do that. And I think in this, you know, in all this back and forth and fighting and, and, and posturing by the president, the vice president, others, some people of good faith, lots of people not of good faith, we should just keep our eye on the ball. And America is great. It can be made greater. And however people choose to do it, even if it's not their personal preference, is okay. That's what's good about America. And by the way, here's a quick coda to the story. My dad this morning texted me a photograph of my report card from kindergarten. I had no idea he was that kind of hoarder. And so whatever, whatever my dad said to the teacher, you can see from the report card that he got the unsatisfactories changed to satisfactory. Yeah, it occurs to me it would have been helpful to have my dad help change some of my grades in law school. Anyway, on that note, thanks, Dad. That's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Catherine Hoke, and thank you for listening. Uh, oh, and also, keep those reviews on Apple Podcasts coming. Uh, Mom and Dad really like them. Send me your questions. I really look forward to them, and I'm going to try to answer them as often as I can. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle and Jeff Eisenman. We have new episodes coming to you every Thursday. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.